microcosmos may offer the whatever. One, encouragement to those who enrich lives by giving expression to a medium. Two, sustenance to those who feed on the values the artists create for us. The creative outlet, those who long for the song. Ah, uh, what an exciting day. Okay. So, hello everyone. Um, I'm Mariah Perkins. I'm the nonfiction editor of Mojo and Microcosmos this year. Um, thank you for coming to the Microcosmos book release. We are excited to share with you the contents of Micro's 64th issue. Microcosmos has a long history here at WSU and in Kansas. It's the longest running literary journal in the whole state, printing its first issue in 1958. Along with that history comes community, a community based in love for the arts and humanities. We saw that community show up for us while dealing with funding issues this year. Because of this, today's celebration feels twofold. First and foremost, celebrating the release of a book we are proud of, but also celebrating the readership and community built around this literary journal. So before I introduce the editor-in-chief and we go into the reading, I'm going to talk about some logistics. Uh, <laughs> so uh, before each reader, I'm going to give a brief introduction. Then they can come up and read their piece from the journal. Directly following the readers, we will begin the open, open mic with a short introduction from me. Um, and make sure that if you're reading tonight that you appropriately adjust the microphone for your height. Um, and also the open mic five minute limit. Am I forgetting anything? We're good. Okay. So before I introduce our editor in chief, I'd like to read a poem featured in um, our first issue of Microcosmos 60 years ago. And it's also in this year's journal. So here it goes. Okay. Microcosmos may offer the whatever. One, encouragement to those who enrich lives by giving expression to a medium. Two, sustenance to those who feed on the values the artists create for us. The creative outlet, those who long for the song. Okay. The first person I'd like to introduce is our fearless leader, our editor-in-chief. Throughout this year, Katie has inspired a staff to give the best of themselves to Mojo and Micro. She has a clear gift for leadership, but also a great trust in those she works with, which empowers and gives opportunities to everyone a part of the Micro staff. Thank you for such a fulfilling experience. So here's our editor-in-chief, Katie Amundsen. Hey, guys. Um, thanks, Mariah. That was very sweet. <laughs> Um, so I just want to thank a few people before we get started, um, personally. First, I want to thank the micro editors and all of the micro staff readers, um, the party planning committee, <laughs> everyone who put this all together. Um, I really, really appreciate it. And I'd also like to thank Jana from the All Rich, um, for helping us, uh, problem solve and to put this together because <laughs> um, I'm really happy with it. So thank you so much. Um, I'd also like to thank Margaret Daw um, for being such a great advisor. Thank you. <laughs> um, I'd like to thank the contributors to Microcosmos and those of them who are here reading tonight. We really appreciate it and we can't wait to hear uh, your pieces live. 
Um, also, our artist, Rhonda Davis, is here, so I'd like to thank her as well. Her beautiful art is on the walls. If you haven't checked it out yet, definitely go take a closer look after the reading. Um, and I'd like to thank the readers and supporters of Microcosmos. So that's literally every single person in this room. I love you guys. And lastly, this is it, I promise. Everyone who wrote a letter to the editor to the Sunflower in support of Microcosmos this year. Um, we got full funding. We couldn't have done it without you guys. Um, that's all I got. Okay, so I did forget a thing. One thing, though. So I'm going to go back to that real quick. So you might be like, what's going on over here? So, um, so we're lucky to be surrounded by art in this building, to be supported um, by artists across campus. Um, behind me is the combined work of Hallie Lindbergh and Kristen Beals Foundations in 3D design class. It's called Cardboard Vanitas. Um, so yeah, appreciate that we've got some other art around us too, as well as the art from our own journal. Okay, so our first reader tonight is John Kelly Yenser. He graduated, <laughs> is that okay? I'm gonna read your, <laughs> it has to be, okay. So he graduated in 1967, a student of literature and writing. At WSU, he read books of poets who were alive and worked on micro. Although there was no creative writing program for undergraduates and no MFA at the time, there were excellent writers on the faculty who taught prose and poetry. It is because of their efforts that Yenser later published poems and prose in journals, two chapbooks, and one collection of poems, The News as Usual, forthcoming from the University of New Mexico Press. The book has a great deal to do with Wichita. So here is John Kelly Yenser reading An Abecedarian Concerning Death in Rural America. Never in such a pretty place out here before as this. I don't think, uh, I think when we, in the old days, and they really were old days, <laughs> uh, we read in a bar called Blackout across the street, and it was really very dark and not nearly as cheerful. <laughs> there was beer. There was no fondue. Mm. Uh, I should say that the last time I read with my daughter in the room was a long time ago in Portland, at which point she told everyone that she had had a new tattoo put on. So it was, it was alarming to be in this room and say, oh, yeah, great, another tattoo. So I'd, I'm, going, I'm hoping that there are no tattoos tonight. Um, I'm sorry? Uh, I'm just talking about your tattoos. <laughs> is, that, is that okay? Can you hear? You missed all the best lines. So. You can hold it. No, I can't hold it. Okay. I can't even see. It's so, as close as we can get it. Okay. So when I sent this poem in, is that that's all right? Is that all right? Okay, I'm sorry. Uh, when I sent this poem in, uh, Katie, uh, who seems to be the engine that drives everything, pointed out to me that I could not spell the title correctly. 
Well, this is disconcerting. Uh, when you, <laughs> you send a poem to an editor of a magazine that you yourself used to edit, <laughs> and the editor writes back and says, well, that's a nice poem enough, but, you know, you can't spell the word abucidarian. And there was another mistake, too, but I, I appreciate Katie's vigilance. She's the only other person who ever read this poem. That Okay, this poem, actually, okay, I'm going to stop. Uh, this poem was suggested to me by a friend uh, who's from Nebraska. I have coffee with him every so often. And he, he and I tell each other lies about growing up in the Midwest. And one day the subject was how people die in the Midwest and in odd ways that people don't understand who don't live out here. So I went home and uh, worked on this poem for a while. It's called an ABC Darien concerning death in rural America. And this is a kind of prompt, you know, it's a 26-line it's a poem that, that starts with a letter, each letter of the alphabet consecutively, so you go from A to Z. Just, it, it's a good way to kind of start writing a poem, and it's fine until you get to X and Z. It gets, to, it's gets a little more difficult, but this is the poem that Katie took, and I appreciate it. It's, great, it's really good to be here. I like this place. Uh, at first you think it's amusing, but the list keeps growing and chills set in because death happens out here every so often freakishly. Item, falling into a half full and slowly filling grain elevator, the seasonal boy suffocates hours before he's dug out in the middle of the night in Iowa. Item, just stepping down from a circling tractor kills another kid who catches his pants last thing. It happens in the fall in Kansas. Or more than once, something explodes in the barn. No one hears any of it in the rain or you think it's thunder. Later, lightning strikes the boy playing left field in the pasture. Quirky myth coming true this time. Roscoe, it was, cousin on my mother's side. Some deaths seem normal, but there's no doubt today's news reports prefer accidents uniquely rural, or most especially, the occasional very suspicious one. For instance, when Walter's wife said he seized up Xmas Eve feeding the pigs and was eaten, you couldn't believe her. There were so many zeros on his policy for a whole life. Thank you. Thank you, Katie. Okay, so our next reader is Maithley Manan. Are you ready? Um, she is a, a linguist who moonlights as a poet. Originally from India, she currently teaches linguistics here at Wichita State. Here is Maithili Manan reading Absence. So it looks like, you know, th this is in my introduction to linguistics or history of English class, right? Because that's what I'm used to. I'm not used to, you know, standing in front of people and reading a poem. 
Um, so, first of all, I want to thank um, all the editors of Microcosmos and um, the editorial team and all the people um, who have worked behind Microcosmos from the entire English department faculty, right? Thank you so much. You guys are awesome. Um, and thank you for putting together um, this um, volume. Um, so, a little bit background about the poem. Um, this poem was written in 2015 um, in Los Angeles, actually, when I was a graduate student at Los Angeles um, doing my PhD. Uh, but the poem was, it, it has to do with my uh, MA days actually back in India, uh, in Hyderabad, uh, in a place called Hyderabad. And so uh, many of the imagery that you see in the poem is, is actually from, you know, 10, 15 years ago when I was doing my master's. Um, so it's called Absence. The lack of therein, of piercing looks, hungry syllables, coated with impatience, the fake lines on your palm, making its slow journey over my arm, the sweat dribbling from your forehead, corks and bottle screws, bubbling froth, meandering walks in silence, a verse or two of proof rock, the heavy breath of minimalism, clock's last sigh, boiled bok choy, the blinking marker of words yet to be born, a glance, conversations in space, warmth of hands, locked in secrets, leftover drops of wine, lines of hymns, out of tune, cards dispersed, unwanted sunsets, crimson, smells of rinds of oranges, orderings rankings, transit and stations, smell of train boots, reminders of prior bookmarkers, in unfinished, incomplete chapters. Thank you. Thank you. So before introducing our next reader, I would like to highlight our featured artist, Rhonda Davis. Uh, Rhonda Davis is a Kansas-based multimedia artist predominantly known for her intricately detailed pen and ink drawings, which weave imagery and pattern to initiate a visual dialogue with her viewer. Using physical mark making, she strives to create work that explores the ways we connect or disconnect with ourselves, others, and our environment. For Davis, personal mythology and the stories woven within different cultures are a primary source of inspiration and contemplation. The natural environment became a large focus in her work after a residency in Shelton, Washington, where she witnessed the ways people engage with nature, but also witnessed the disconnect humans have in regards to their impact on something so vital to human survival. Davis holds a BFA from Wichita State University and has participated in numerous solo and group exhibitions. You can find her online at rondadavisart.com and also in this issue of Microcosmos and also on the wall over there. So we are really happy to have her in our journal. Yeah, let's give her a So our next reader is Josh Zimmer. He is a graduate, well soon, of the Wichita State MFA program with a concentration in fiction and will be attending University of North Texas's PhD program in the fall. His work has been published in Bolterature, 614 Magazine Recap and Fjords Review. As of yet, 
He has not been to Mars. Um, so here is my friend, Josh, reading from his short story, Montgomery, Judo, Phoenix. Sorry, I don't know. I'm just laughing. <laughs> You're great. Hey, everybody. Um, so I feel bad because everyone else gets to read like, poetry and it's nice and concise and I have to show up and like ruin everything with prose. Um, <laughs> So instead of reading a whole short story, I'm just going to read like two smaller sections from it, um, just to give a little background. Uh, so this story, by and large, just involves, uh, you have like this 12-year-old, his name is Anderson, his dad had just recently died, um, his grandma's senile, his grandma doesn't remember that her son had died, and so she keeps calling the house, and his mom, Anderson's mom, doesn't want to deal with the phone calls anymore, so she's basically just uh, throwing these phone calls over to Anderson, and then through circumstances, Anderson is now basically pretending to be his dad on the phone to like kind of like appease his grandmother. Um, so that's where we're at, and I'll just kind of go from there. Um, this is weird. Uh, Anderson disappeared for every 20 minutes, or Anderson disappeared for 20 minutes every time Grandma Olfchek called. He'd been chewed up and processed until all that remained was imitation Frank. He practiced maneuvering from certain topics with his mom. How's Jennifer? Oh, fine, just fine. Well, you know what she told me the other day? How could I stand between the two women of my life? Remember when you punched a hole through the drywall? I don't seem, remember it, seem to remember that way, Ma. Did the doctor ever get back to you with the results? This is a question Anderson hesitated answering each time. And though he did, he knew his grandma would forget and surely ask it the next phone call. There are always two answers rummaging in his brain when asked this. No, and the truth. He would always answer the former. But the practicing helped. His answers became more assured, more confident. His mom would pull out home videos, and over microwaved enchiladas, Anderson would close his eyes and listen to the way his dad would raise the pitch in his voice when angry, speak faster when around his wife, and almost whisper when teaching Anderson how to swing a bat. He didn't want to ask non-senile relatives about his dad's behavior. It would taint the performance, become subjective and manic. Still, there were stories raised but never completed by his grandmother. Stories which, if she truly were speaking to Frank, wouldn't need explanation nor finishing. She spoke dangling idioms. Anderson only needed to reach. What about the drywall? Anderson said to his mother one day while rehearsing. In your father's voice, his mother said. I don't want to ask, he said. In your father's voice. Anderson transported himself to a home movie. The crawfish boil, where he was first taught how to suck out the brains and the good stuff. Deflating commenced. What happened with the drywall, he said. You and your brother were in high school, Anderson's mother said. You both snuck beers down to the basement while your parents were away. It was when you were in your prime. You wrestled and you drank. What started out as a playful turned mean, and you ran Dave's head straight through the wall. You told your mom it was your fist and you tripped. She didn't believe it from the start. That's why she likes to ask. Why were they drinking in the first place, Anderson asked. As your dad, sweetie. As your dad. Why were we drinking? Anderson's mom scooted her chair close to her son, the orange peel smell of her hair more palpable. Anderson was only 12. He may have been impersonating his father, but that didn't mean he was any older. His mom placed her fingers on the back of his neck, her painted nails scratching below the ear. The enchiladas were cold now. Because you didn't know any better, it's what you did. Anderson couldn't imagine his dad not knowing something. By no means did he think he'd been conceived by geniuses, but still. There was no question left unanswered. Now, Anderson lost confidence in what he'd been told. His dad could, could, his dad could explain away oh, his sickness. It wasn't terrifying until what, it was over. But if, what if it was terrifying all along? 
I think I'm going to call her today, Anderson said. But can I get back to homework, Mom? Please, his mother said. Call me Jen. There was one home video Anderson watched the most. It was the Christmas before Anderson was born, his mom pregnant and his dad spry and bearded. They had forgotten Frank's parents a new garbage they had gotten Frank's parents a new garbage disposal. This was two years before Grandpa Olfchek died of the same disease which took Frank, and the men of the family decided to install it that night. Only they had all been drinking. Everyone had been drinking. Anderson could close his eyes, listening for a Frank he had never known. All his family would relate how rare it was for this to happen once Anderson was born. He tried to make connections between his father juggling flathead screwdrivers and a head-sized hole in the wall. His speech, speech pattern was radically different as well. Well, Jesus, his dad said in the video, I'll just pour da- beer down the damn thing. If it comes out, we can just have someone below. Don't let a drop spill. Not a drop, his Uncle Dave said. Not a drop, everyone, re- everyone else repeated. Frank's laughter flailed across the kitchen as shots were passed around. He turned toward his wife, unassumed and sober, and kissed her deeply and unashamedly. He dropped toward her bulged stomach and began to sing, Cats in the Cradle and a Silver Spoon. Christ, Christ, Jennifer said, what's wrong with you? That's what you sing? Everyone else in the video was still laughing and attentive to the sink, but with his eyes closed, Anderson imagined silence as his father contemplated a better song to sing to his unborn son. There's calm in the world for a few seconds. It's the dad Anderson remembered best, the silent one, timid and conserved. But then Frank sang something new into his wife's stomach. Vile Conchitos, my love. The rest of the family sans Jennifer began singing that same line repeatedly, a refrain for a song that none of them knew the verses for, just vile conchitos, my love, vile conchitos, my love, until the entire room brimmed with vile conchitos, and Anderson's mom huffed out of frame. The rest of the video focused back on the disastrous home improvement. They had to call in a professional the next day. But there's a moment near the end where the sound cuts out. True silence. Frank moved towards his mother and hugged her passionately. They both exchanged a couple of muted words, and then Grandma Olfchek wailed, though because of the lack of noise, Anderson was never sure if it was laughter or tears. The video soon ended after. Thank you. Okay, so friends in the back where the open mic list is at. Is it full? Just, no, oh. Oh, there's still four spots left? <laughs> and we're in a room full of writers? Weird. <laughs> Someone should write their name down on that list. Okay. Um, so our last reader before the open mic is Pamela Yenser. She was a contributor editor on Microcosmos um, in, at WSU. Uh, she later studied at PSU and earned her creative writing degree at University of Idaho, an, Amer- an Academy of American Poets College Prize recipient and nominee for the Pushcart Prize and AWP Award. Her work appears online at Connotation Press, Kansas Poets Index, Notable Kansas Poets, and in Kansas Quarterly, Poetry, Northwest, Shenandoah, and a dozen anthologies. Long poems include Love Letter to Kansas, Pentacles, and Zipper Trip. Pamela lives in Albuquerque, Albuquerque with John Kelly Yenzer and the ridiculous Labrador, Moby Coyote. So here is Pamela Yenzer reading Fronts. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Well, I have to say Albuquerque was pronounced by my mother, Albuquerque. And that's what we say now. It's Albuquerque, (laughs) New Mexico. It's a pleasure to be reading here and to be reading with my family. (laughs) 
and uh, really appreciate everybody being here. It's nice to return to the campus after so many years. This is called Fronts, and uh, it's a poem that previously appeared in an issue of Pivot Magazine in a very different version. I kept revising, and now here it is. Fronts. The first squalls were disaster enough. Tomatoes bloodied the yard. The grass lay flattened by soft green cockleburrs of ripe walnuts stinking up the holes that our bird dogs dug to escape the yard. I've patched up their work with chicken wire, snakes, stakes, and dirt, Lilliputian trench work. In the lull of tornadoes, sirens, fire ants keep stocking up ort by ort. It's a small world, our world, after all. I have a premonition this time that we're in the path of the wall cloud, a mismatch of zephyr and notice south by southwesterly, blown and bruised all up and down like those pinto-patched columns you and I saw at Delphi. If clouds were oracles, could they speak? Would they have us sacrifice the kids? <laughs> Sensing violence, I start calling our children name by name. And now, you, in Chicago, I'm calling on you to listen how the walnuts are now popping off the tree out back, its trunk stripped, its canopy turned inside out, limbs shining like those cast iron ribs of Oldenburg's iron umbrella. How everything has gone dark, no light, no flashlight. My candle snuffed, and then the house sighing in and out as if breathing a quick prayer for those for whom safety seems as far away as you or heaven or the crib at the top of the stairs. Your son won't climb until I drag him by his miniature hand to where his sister lies a bundle floating the rivers past her window. Then comes the black blockbuster, a giant thud, as a giant third of our three-story walnut falls to earth. Fee, fi, fo, fum, crushing our fence, enmeshing itself in chain-link armor, heaving broken branches past us like spears. And that's when, I think, it happens that the small house next door, the widow's, lifts a little on its lattice skirts, then sits down hard with a crash of kettles and, and frying plant pans, probably flying pans too. So I grab the baby, her brother grabs me around my knees, and we three scuttle like field mice down the stairwell to the basement under the metal table between the washer and dryer. Hurry home, and we'll be here still. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, so we're going to start the open mic now. Um, strictly five minutes. Um, and if the spirit moves you during this and you're like, I want to read and I didn't put my name on the list, that's okay. Tap me on the shoulder, tell me your name, um, and I will introduce you. Um, yeah, so first, my friend, John Duck. Hi. 
All right. Thank you so much for showing up, everyone. This is super cool. Um, I'm going to read five small poems, ranging from very small to not as small. Um, let's just get started. You won't karaoke? That's okay. I love you and respect your decision. <laughs> Golden Retriever. Strands of hair are all we have to keep this animal in existence. I won't let you go out of business like this. The taxidermist's worried face tacks my arm around your shoulder. His shelves tufted bare and knotted. Some things should never be propped up in dignified positions. You found her in the road close to home. The dust of memorized CPR, hourglass in your fingers. You ran your hand along her coat as if a pocket with instructions would appear. Stay-at-home dad dream. Girl in armor on horseback with billowing golden dreads, her mud-streaked bloody boots crashing your second-story bedroom window from the dewy gash of early spring, her stallion catwalking grass stains into the carpet, flipping its boy-band mane, she extends her gauntlet with the swagger of Rapunzel's lead neck muscles and explodes out the window and leaps the fence to the backyard pool, pool, freezing Elsa bridges to every last castle available. But every one of you boys chooses to stay here in the Pieta, waiting to be smooched. Or she carries you to some rom-com edition of Italy, where they speak fluent English, and your old crushes wink on your cathedral prof picks, and the toy shops sell packs of Pokemon cards, the old ones, from our generation. <laughs> this one's called... I would perpetrate the century-long crime of imposing coal industry dependence upon an economically susceptible region for you. Enforce me by aircraft going down on the roadside wildflowers, capsize my feet steps into rock slides, my rock slides into clo clo closing palms, tucking necklaces into the earth's palm. Slip me away at your overgrown yard sale, terrify my switchback soul. Enter my abandoned high school windows and violate me like a sexist school dress code. Brush fire my lips, furrow my soily skin, grow things on me, lick deer salt from my back, a deerling's first step, first taste of dirt. And this one's a fresh one. I can't remember ever seeing Donald Trump's name in a poem. What the heck? I'm trying to remember when poetry told me that my rational fear and indignation is a cliché. A rose by any other name would make buying flowers to put on the graves of our loved ones even more confusing than it already is. I am sorry. I know this is a bad poem. Let's go write some more. Thank you. Uh, he's great. Okay, next is Mike. Followed by Becca. I'm going to just say, you go right after him. That's what I'm going to say. Alright, this is called East of Center. The desert climbs east into the watermelon mountains, offering its cactus flowers to boulders that crumble like croutons into the mouth of the old canyon. The foothills are dirty plates scrubbed by night winds to be reused day after day. Below is a city that drinks from the water table, 
that invisible wet tongue that sucks seeds and pushes juniper, bear grass, and Apache plume through its teeth and into the brown world. In Albuquerque, the desert's dry lips are sealed with concrete, Costco's, and buses that run on time. The sun has cracked the sidewalks of East Central Avenue, and the people are split wide open. They stand in parking lots, refusing to blink. Shade is a blind spot. The thing to do is shout into every car that passes with an open window. Shout as loud as you can. Stand in the sun long enough, and you can enter any world you want. All right, I got one more. This is called Minor Holidays. I'm like reading through the mic and somehow like, I'm going cross-eyed here. All right, let me move this to the side. Minor Holidays. St. Valentine. We use the rusty Chinese cleaver to cut a frozen pizza on his own failed cardboard. Today the ants take the crumbs and I know she hides the bleeding at our third interview this week. St. Patrick. We argue while the corned beef boils and the cabbage, the weight of a child's head, rolls off the cutting board. I mentioned that cabbage is 49 cents per pound and how expensive it would be for us to raise a child. Super Bowl Sunday. I sit in a recliner and, and reach backwards to feel the muscles push my shoulders to my ears. I build temples to the fresh cut grass and breathe in the ghosts of old wind sprints. She watches Beyonce's leg run from rib to ankle. Thanksgiving, we have no family, living on an island of our own making. We have pots and pans, a little furniture, and a dog who claims us as her pack. We run with her, sniffing the moments and howling at the years. Black Friday, we wake up early and haul two old bikes up a muddy trail. The highway hushes behind us and the light flirts through the trees. We are eight years old again, each other's first crush and last love, the way it should and can never be. Thanks. didn't print my poem out, so I'm reading from my phone, and I used to yell at people who did this. <laughs> Makes me look younger. All right. Talk amongst yourselves. Oh, yeah, I see what you mean. It's like, I can't. Okay. Got it. So, um, this poem, oh, I have a new book out. You guys should buy it. <laughs> um, thanks. It's on Dancing Girl Press um, online. Seven dollars. And um, yeah, so this is, from, this is from that book, and we're still in Albuquerque, so. How to forgive in the desert. First, attach yourself to the sky. Go to the furthest edge of city, violet, starstruck, closer to God. Not everyone has the heart for it. Some hearts are less red. Find yourself a cloud kingdom. Don't come down easily. Stay up in that thin air. Don't think about how you can't breathe. People have not breathed here for 11,000 years. Second, try to remember why you're here. Slick Rock Playground, these are hippos on their sides. No water, arroyo. Say arroyo over and over until your throat is a canyon. Third, pray to the creatures, especially the whiptail lizards whose backs are lined like cucumbers Birds will come and go, fine dusted worries will land on your toes, 
coarser planets in your hair. Running will result in headache. Please do not run. Remember, you will never be able to see the plateau and the canyon at the same time. When you're walking one way, you will only remember what is behind you. When you look behind you, you will only guess what's ahead. What rock will arise? What might, what might snake in front of you? What bright vested jogger will arrive in your conscience suddenly with tangibility? You do not know who you are anymore. Now drive home, shudder in the kitchen, watch him eat cold cereal as you try to explain your tiny heart, the handfuls of stones in your pockets. Thanks. Okay, so the next two readers will be Shannon and then Caroline. Okay. I have two. We'll see what we're doing time. So the first one's an old workshop goodie called That Time of Year. The Christmas after his wife left him, my father-in-law says into a punched glass that he feels like an outsider at her family's holiday party. My husband and I say nothing. I slide on new bracelets and thumb through pristine books, ooing and eyeing over the cousin's family photos in a homemade calendar, somehow considered to be a gift that someone else would actually want. Like the chocolate-covered cherries my grandmother-in-law gives each year to the kids who robotically thank her and then slide each ball, oozing rose-colored viscous, into a trash can. The aunt-in-law, with too much teeth, clucks over the babies and asks when we are going to start building a family. We eat too much food and sing too many carols, and I'm asked to play someone's untuned violin. A year ago, my mother-in-law had squeezed into a slim-fitted plaid skirt, eaten two bites of someone's wilted taco salad, and then crept to the empty patio to call a friend from her high school days about holiday travels. Had I not been busy following a toddler with a toy gun and a Napoleon complex, I would have seen in her that same instinct to get through these family functions if we could designate the one person to talk to, even if it's a curly-haired kid or an online phantom resurrecting the past with texts about meeting up at the day's end after things quiet down. She left for good while her boys slept, taking nothing but a suitcase of clothes. Now her ex-husband sits in a circle of in-laws, which is another way of saying almost relatives, the almost grandmother and almost cousins and almost presents that are more for you and your spouse, who, by the way, is the one thing there that's actually yours. So I get it, I want to say to him, with something akin to practice calm and hushed desperation. Okay. And then this one is called Where You Were Carried. Today, let's transpose the music. It's easy. You must change how you look at things, but the rules remain the same. Follow the trajectory of notes, plant your fingers carefully, and hoist yourself up or down. Do it long enough, and this new way of playing will come naturally. Breathing in time, the sing-song rhythm of crying, playing vibrato, the same bones and muscles you use to wave at old friends bringing flower wreaths, cards, and bags of food to your porch, or to wave at babies and shopping carts. Hold this position a long time without breaking the wrist twisted, shoulder rigid, fingers clamped on strings. Your hands just know where to go, without frets, requiring total trust. You can pull it off for hours, bent in the most absurd and inhuman conditions, and I promise you'll find that you even enjoy it. 
I used to practice on pencils right before my lessons, for which I always felt unprepared. Once, my teacher said I gave her chills, that I did more than just play notes. I understood them. No matter how often I looked at the wooden body nested in my arms, I couldn't figure how to replicate that kind of understanding. This morning, I reached. When I was done re reaching for reasons like love or work or God to rest myself out of bed, instead for my violin. The weight is heavy, but it's actually the violin that carries you. Play for an hour without thinking about the hour, and you'll see what I mean. The violin sings, too, even when it's not playing. Did you know this? Open the case, and you'll hear its faint whisper. The air will rattle the strings. You will pull its body from its velvet bed, place the bow on the ark, watch hands no longer yours move, and breathe a rhythm foreign to you. You'll go miles from where you started to a place where you were carried, and the only thing you will bring with you is the familiar warmth of wood and fiber in your palms. Thank you. I have two poems, Whoops. Uh, the first of which is called Solace. I have held on to this openness, like a gap between your white fingers, stretching and closing. You are a spider and you keep me warm. You are a spider and you keep me steady. The air hangs heavy, fragrant, and I have held on to this openness, openness, how the lilac looks in April, in May, how you have beheld my air, standing by the cemetery trees, hands wet with dim light. The openness of these perfect human teeth, your neck strains and catches shadows in the evening. In the evening, all I wanted to be was a thing, without a time, without a space, the whole of the world, gone to the dark. I wanted to be a thing with nowhere but your room, no light but your candle, to lean into the void and know those hands would hold me, those gaps filled. You are a spider, but you keep me warm. Wow, I guess this is sort of a creepy, crawly-themed poetry reading because this one is also, uh, also creepy, crawly-related. Uh, it's called uh, Cicadas Sing Their Own Funeral Song. I think about you like summer, immortalized in certain red crevices of my heart, like fireflies in damp air, right after the sun sets, like cicadas wriggling out of their carapaces, red eyes emerging. I think of that smell, mosquito repellent and iron, the inside of your cheek bitten to rawness. That summer, too, had a rawness to it, like a cat stretched out on the hot road, fresh, bloody, full of promise. Okay, we've got an addition to the list, which is very exciting. Um, so Zach will go next, followed by Mariah. That's me. <laughs> Hi, um, I'm Zach. I'm just a student here, undergrad. Do not have the skill or confidence of any of these other people, but I can try. Um, this one is called Abstract Gawking. Golden vultures eat decayed apples, something most don't gawk at. 
I do. Revel in the revelations. That's with the roots of, Wedwid, of Redwood's whisper. Mole and mysteries. That's, the, what, that's what the peak of mountains utter. I do both while gawking. I've always admired the vultures. Considered myself the purest one. But it's baffling. Why do they feast on rotten fruit? Why do I? Maul and revel. Not every corrupt consumer does this. I'm not golden. Keep that. I'm ethereal. Earthly. A sliver of pure abstraction. <clears throat> and then... Um, I'm going to do one called Winter. Oh, if that's cool. <laughs> Rosalia, nos quedamos solitos. I just wanted to tell you, it's true, but not. Paradoxes are where you'll live. Love. The winter was cruel and meek. The scythe caressed my being. Coldness, birth, numbness. Nos quedamos solitos. Yet here I be, being alive and well enough. That's good enough. Gods of spring, I thank you. Life, I thank you. Nos quedamos solitos. And that's it. <laughs>